0: I'm going to teach today, Jim will teach the next two weeks, and then Ryan's going to close us out. That's kind of what we're doing, first two chapters of Luke. And if you were to begin the gospel of Luke in those first two chapters, it begins with two birth announcements. Two birth announcements. The first birth announcement is to a really old couple that shouldn't be able to have kids, Zechariah and Elizabeth. The second birth announcement is to a really young, um, unmarried virgin girl, also, don't know if you know this about virgins, shouldn't be able to have kids, okay? Shouldn't be able to, shouldn't be able to happen. Um, so that's kind of how Luke begins. Both of those announcements are given by an angel, an angel with a name, Gabriel, that we see in the text. But Luke's gospel does not just begin with two birth announcements. His gospel also begins with two births. We see the birth of John the Baptist come at the end of chapter 1. Um, We see the birth of Jesus Christ come at the beginning of chapter 2 to that unmarried girl. Neither of them, like I said, should be able to have kids. But the angel visits them both. And God, it turns out, has opened the womb of old Elizabeth and given her a boy. And God will overshadow Mary and the virgin will conceive And then he says, nothing is impossible with God. In regards to these two women, old Elizabeth and young Mary, Fred Craddock says this, they will have sons strictly because God is able. They will have sons for our sake because God is gracious. Two birth announcements, two births. And sandwiched in between the two birth announcements and the two births, we have the meeting of the two women. The two women come together. Not only are they related, but they're drawn together by common experiences and they meet in an unnamed village in the Judean Hills. Elizabeth is old, like I said, and her son is going to close an age. And Mary is young and her son, Jesus Christ, is going to usher in a new one. But Luke's gospel doesn't just begin in those two chapters with two birth announcements and with two births and with the meeting of the mothers. Luke's gospel also begins with a song. Now, I love a good song, don't you? You guys like a good song? It doesn't take much for us, even in a room this size with this many people, to find common ground over song. It really would be nearly impossible, in fact maybe absolutely impossible to get through this life without song, without singing, without melody, without music. It is everywhere. We sing songs for birthdays. Last night I got to go to a five-year-old's birthday and we sang him a song. We sing songs for our country, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We have songs that are organized by eras. We have songs that are organized by genres. We have songs that are organized by people group, like this is a children's song. We have entire productions that are organized around songs. We call those things musicals. We sing to children before bed, things like Jesus Loves Me, and if you lived in my house... You also woken up oftentimes by a song, because my mom would come in, flip on the light, and immediately start to sing, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Now, first service knows this song. You guys are, are a little younger, I'm just going to say, than first service. But I, if you know it, I, I, I want to hear you sing this. It goes, rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, rise and shine and give God the Fist pump your eyes and shine and give God the glory, glory, children of the Lord. And scene. Very good. You guys did a great job. That's right. Yes. So that is how we oftentimes woke up. And then, I mean, my mom's not like a saint. She's pretty awesome. But she would also say, like, get up. Come on, let's go. Yeah. She'd also do that. Okay. We not only listen to music, we spend time watching shows of other people singing. And we judge whether or not we would prefer to hear their voice. We can even text in to vote for them or not. We have pianos that take up space in our living rooms. We have phones that are able to connect to the speakers in our cars. We have Alexas on our kitchen counters and on our bedside tables. In fact, walk into nearly any store in Stillwater, America today, and you will hear over the speakers a song, a melody, Music. It is everywhere. I know it is for my family. We, like I said, we like to sing. We're not very necessarily good at it, but we really enjoy some good music. My dad, my dad and mom, you just need to know this about them. They go to church here, have for a long time. They still have cable. They do. I know a lot of us are into streaming things. They have cable. That's what they do. So they, now one of the benefits of having cable is that they get to see these concerts that are presented and so my dad will record these concerts and then when my brothers come into town and um, I don't know what your family does if you have grown kids and they come back, some people talk, some play games, we do those things. We also sit in living rooms and watch other people give us a concert via the TV and we talk about how much we like that music and how much we like that artist, that's what we do as families. Another thing about my dad, and if any of you know him or have spent any time with, amount of time with him, especially in a vehicle, you would have experienced this. We oftentimes play this game called Name That Tune. And we played it, I think, every trip. In fact, I think if I was to go get in the car right now, my dad would be like, let's play Name That Tune. You get a point for the artist. You get a point for the title of the song. And we can play it all the way from Unionville, Missouri, eight hours home. We could play a mean game of Name That Tune. At our last family reunion on my dad's side, um, we hired a preacher to come and preach to us, which may seem uncommon, but it's not when your whole family's full of preachers. So he comes and he preaches to um, our family. And then afterwards, our family stood and sang for an hour. That's what we did to praise the Lord. My grandmothers on both my mom's and my dad's side, they play the piano and played the piano. My nana, my mom's mom, she loves like clever little kid songs. Like she'll always have a new song that she wants to show us because she worked with the little biddies and she loved to come up with new ways to get them to know God's word. And she loves doing it. Um, in fact, on, a, on, on Monday, we have a staff meeting and we talk about the upcoming text for the next Sunday. And one of the things that Jim said is Jim said, we don't really do this anymore. We don't just break out in song. And I thought... Huh, that is so true, except for my Nana. I kid you not, talking to her is like walking into a live musical you will be talking about something that has nothing to do with a song whatsoever. And she'll just start, I love you, a bushel and a peck, a bushel and a peck, and a hug around your neck. Okay, Nana, I guess this is what we're doing now. It's like a live musical. She had collected these little music boxes and they were in the shape of pianos. And all of them are breakable except one, which means all the grandkids could not touch any of them except for one. But what we would ask her to do is wind them up and play them for us so we could hear those music boxes go. Plato says that poets and singers have more influences in a state than lawmakers. He says it is because more than anything else, rhythm and harmony find their way into the, most in, into the inmost soul and take strongest hold upon it. I think Plato might be right. You see, my grandma on my dad's side, she's passed away, my dad's mom. But before that, she spent a lot of her years playing piano for the church and giving piano lessons to people in her town. And in fact, even after she was diagnosed with dementia, my grandmother would play and she would sing. And when she could no longer remember how to play the piano, She would still sing. And even when she nearly lost all of her memory, when she did not recognize her children or her grandchildren, she did not even recognize her husband anymore, she would be able to recall hymns. And so our family would gather together, sit in a room, and we would sing to God, and my grandmother would hum along. I could get into a good song, can't you? Luke seems to get into a good song. In fact, he doesn't just begin his gospel with one song. He begins his gospel in those first two chapters. There is recorded four songs that Luke has for us. Four of them in the first two chapters. We have this one here that we're talking about today, the Magnificat, which is Mary's song, which stands for, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then a few verses later, we have another song. We have the song of Zechariah, the Benedictus. It means, blessed be the name of God. And then the third song, you guys would probably know, because we sing it a lot, especially at Christmas. It's Gloria in Excelsis. It's the angel song, which means glory to God in the highest. And then a few verses later in chapter two, uh, later in chapter two, what we have is Simeon's song. You remember Simeon? He's old, he's at the temple, they bring in Jesus. He's an infant, he sees Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen the salvation. And then he, and now I can depart. And he sings the Nunc Dimittis, four songs. That seems significant, doesn't it? That Luke When recording the coming of God in the flesh, the very incarnation of Jesus Christ, he notes that it is accompanied with singing. Why? Why in the middle of the birth announcements and the births of these two boys do we have a meeting and a song? Is it just added here for fun? Was Mary's personality just kind of a singing one, like my Nana's? No. No. The exegetical commentary on Luke, it states this when it talks about this song. Luke does not include this hymn and the ones to follow as an extra frill to garnish the narrative. Instead, it highlights a major theme that stages a meeting of faith and interpretation God has acted and now a believer responds and interprets what it means from the stance of faith. The effect has been that for centuries the audience has joined to rejoice with Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon. And in some cases, to sing along. Fred Craddock, um, who is a great theologian, he says this. He reminds us that poetry slows down thought and invites participation in the experience being created. It's kind of like Jim mentioned at the end of his talk last week when he said, we don't just want to fly through this, you want to pause. It's like Mary saying, note what is happening, Luke says. There's a lot that's going on here with this immaculate conception and with Jesus Christ entering onto the scene in this world. The Magnificat, Mary's song, it's, it is deeply entrenched in the church. In our church history, it has been spoken for centuries as a church body, if you grew up Catholic, you ha- would have recited this consistently. You would have recited, Magnificat, anima Mea Dominum. You may not have known what it meant, but it's these words, my soul magnifies the Lord. If my research is correct, it's been in the Anglican church since the 6th century, in fact, if you were to go to an Anglican church this evening, it would be recited in the evening service of prayer. The Magnificat. It is interesting that a song like this in a circumstance as specific as this can be entered into the heart of the Christian church forever. No, Mary's song is not fluff and it is not frill. So what's happening here? What is going on? Well, like any people when we study the word, it's often good to look at what comes before a passage. And so that's what we're going to do. In, ch- in chapter 1, verse 39 through 45, it tells us kind of the scene for this song. This is what it says. In those days, Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Now, nothing would have been unusual about that, by the way. Um, you see at the end of Mary's encounter with the angel that he says, hey, your relative, Elizabeth, she's pregnant. She's six months pregnant at this time. Nothing is impossible with God. That's what the angel says. And Mary's like, okay, let it be, be as you have said. She ends that conversation with the, with the angel, and then she apparently rushes off to meet with her relative, Elizabeth. This next part, though, this is pretty extraordinary so what it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she, Elizabeth, exclaimed with a loud cry, "'Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. "'How could this happen to me, "'that the mother of my Lord should come to me? "'For you see, when the sound of your greeting "'reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. "'Blessed is she who has believed "'that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her.'" When Mary arrives at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house, just envision this, Zechariah is not speaking, right? He cannot speak. So she comes. She's going to have time talk with Elizabeth. But something very extraordinary happens. When Mary greets Elizabeth, the text says the baby leaps inside of her. And later in the same text, it explains kind of why the baby leaped. Elizabeth explains more fully. She says the baby leaped for joy inside of her. This is not, oh man, the baby's really moving around today, elbow here, kick here. That's not what this text is talking about. I don't know how you read this text and don't attribute divine working to what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is evident at work here. And that's really cool because if you were to flip a page back, one of the things the angel says to Zechariah about this baby that's going to be born to Elizabeth is he says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. That's one of the things the angel says. And I think this is really neat because let's think about this. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit's job? We know this as a church. What does he always do? He's always ever pointing us to Jesus. Consider Jesus, trust Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And what will be the role of John? To make straight the path, to point people to Jesus. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Look at Jesus, trust Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. I mean, maybe that's too much conjecture here, but I don't think it's it's a big stretch to think that's what's going on is this extraordinary Holy Spirit working something out here. In fact, let's just think about this. If the text is all we have, then technically we don't even know Mary's pregnant yet until Elizabeth proclaims it. The angel says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, that God Almighty will overshadow you, but we don't know when that happens, and we know that she rushes off to see Elizabeth. Maybe she's just gonna tell her the news. I don't know. And yet, Elizabeth is the first human we know of to recognize that the angel's announcement to Mary has come to fruition. And Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, she blesses Mary on two grounds. She says, you are blessed because you've been chosen to be the mother of the Lord and you are blessed because you have believed what the Lord Lord says would actually happen. Unlike my husband, Zechariah, you remember. That's what Elizabeth says. How encouraging it would be for Mary who had this encounter with an angel to go and be anticipating saying something to Elizabeth. And then before she can even tell Elizabeth the news, Elizabeth tells the news to her. I mean, this is really an extraordinary encounter. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. That's what Elizabeth says. And then what does Mary do? She begins to sing. That's what she does. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely for all generations, people will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. I can get into a good song, can't you? Let's break this down line by line, shall we? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Now, some people would say, um, humble condition of his servant, maybe this is grounds for why God chose Mary. But really, even though we believe Mary had a great humility, and even though we can see from the text that she was obedient, and she had a heart that, that, that was quick to trust in the words of the Lord, we can see those things are true, but the text really doesn't say why God chose her other than that's what God does. That's, that's what God does. And so when she says he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, she's not saying, I am so humble, so God chose me. She's saying, no, like, look at my estate. I am of low estate. I am, I am just a poor girl. I am common. I am a common people. I am from the commoners. That's what she's saying there. We don't know the exact reason God chooses Mary. Um, as, as one theologian says, he says, that, that reason lies tucked away in the purposes of God. And then she says, surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. When Mary, again, when she's saying that from now on all generations will call her blessed, it's not a mandate to venerate her, to lift her up. I mean, read, the, read her entire sentence. She, she says, surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. That's Why? And he pours out his mercy from generation to generation. What God has done for Mary is an expression of God's mercy on all people. What God will do for the poor and the powerless and the oppressed of the world. The triumph of God's purposes for all people everywhere. It is a holy and a merciful God that's to be venerated. That's to be lifted up. To regard Mary as blessed is to praise God for what he has done for her because of what that means he has done for us. I mean, I have been so blessed by this church, specifically because I've gotten to to be raised in this church by this church. I mean, Sunnybrook, this church, I've been blessed. And there was this lady a few years ago, I didn't have a car, and she said, you know what, we have a car, you can have it, and just gave me a car right? As one does. She just gives me a car. And I remember saying, I just feel so blessed. Why did I feel blessed? What did I do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. I've done nothing for this woman. I have done nothing for this woman. But out of her generosity, this is what she does. This is what she does. And then what Mary does next is she moves through the song. We start to realize that Mary is interpreting God's grace for her, towards her as a representative of God's act of salvation toward all of Israel, Israel from Abraham on. Listen to what she says. She says, "'He has done a mighty deed with his arm. "'He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. "'He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. "'He has satisfied the hungry with good things.'" And sent the rich away empty. This image of God's uh, arm as this mighty thing, his, his right arm, immediately, if you read your Bibles, and if you, especially if you would have been back then and know, known the Shema like a good Hebrew would have, when you hear his arm, his mighty arm, his right arm, when you hear anything like that, it would have made you think specifically of God's might in the sense of battle. Battle imagery. In particular, it points us back to Exodus, which people would hear that and that's what they would think. They would think what God did for his people in Exodus by bringing them up out of slavery. That's what people would have thought. Paul preaches a sermon in Acts 13 and he says this in verse 17 at the beginning um, of his sermon. He says, the God of this people Israel chose our ancestors... Made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt and led them out of it with a mighty arm. One of the commentaries I read started talking about creeds. Now, one of the things that the church does is um, oftentimes is known to recite these creeds of faith, and um, and if you would want to, we actually have a time of prayer, a little prayer service every Monday morning at 9 a.m. back there. And one of the things that we do during that service is we stand and we recite the Apostles' Creed. That's what we do. Well, the Apostles' Creed, um, it begins with this idea of "I believe in God the Father who created heaven and earth." That's how it begins. And this particular commentator says this, and I love it. He says, one of the commentaries, um, he says this, Israel's first creed is not, I believe in one God who created heaven and earth, but I believe in one God who freed us from slavery. I started thinking about that. It's actually, that's kind of true. It is true that Israel would have remembered, and they would have remembered often, the great mighty way that God reached down to fight for them and to pluck them out to save them. They thought about that. They, they had um, festivals for this. They celebrated this. They remembered this all the time. In fact, a lot of people would say the first song in scripture, there's a little bit of debate on this, but a lot of scholars would say the first song on scripture is actually in Exodus 15. When God brings them up out of slavery in Egypt and they walk through on dry land and then the song of Moses and Miriam as they sing to God on how wonderful and mighty he is for saving them. Here's what I want you to know from this part. We serve a mighty God. We serve a strong God. We teach this to our children. If you were to serve across the way, as Debbie suggested, if you were to serve over there and you happen to serve with three to five-year-olds, you'd find yourself at one point during your time of serving where you'd be walking them down a hallway and you'd sit with them in the main room and they would have what's called wake-up worship. Worship. And each week, they sing praises to God, and they lead children to sing praises to God, and they hear about a story from Scripture about our great God. And if you've served in there for any amount of time, you would have sung the lyrics to this song. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Woo, woo, woo! The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. We teach this to our kids here at Sunnybrook. Our God is strong, our God is mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. And then what does it say? It says that He scatters the proud. He doesn't just scatter the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. As the the Book of Common Prayer says, uh, the imagination of their hearts. He scatters them because of the imagination of their hearts. The very next part, when it's kind of whenever it says he topples the thrones, the mighty from their thrones, that word mighty there, it means self sufficient. So apparently, God scatters the proud who are self sufficient. That's what he does. To be self sufficient means to be in no need of salvation. You don't need to be saved, you can do it all yourself. God raises the lowly, but the mighty don't recognize their lowliness before God. They don't recognize their position in sight of God. I do have to pause and say, with um, these like th- three little parts toppling the mighty in his, his right arm, it would have taken the people back to this imagery of how it used to be and I don't know if you noticed but in our English translations, it's, it's past tense. It's stated as this is, these are facts, these are things God has done. But if you were to study this text, in the Greek it's used, there's a, a certain verb tense that's used and it's the aorist tense. And that's really important because the aorist tense, while it's saying that God has already done this, it's also speaking of what God is doing and what God will do in the future. It's kind of this extra emphasis when it's describing these verbs, these things that God has done. And so it's kind of like saying um, God has and God will and God is doing these things. One of the commentaries I read said, said it this way, so sure is the singer that God will do what is promised, that it is proclaimed as an accomplished fact. So sure is Mary that God's gonna do just what he said, that she sings about it like it already happened. Think about that. This joy that Mary is, is singing with, it flies in the face of the current circumstances of Israel. They are literally, they are very much in a real sense still under the thumb of these oppressive rulers, the Romans. But it implies that God is bringing about a new sort of exodus in a sense. That this mighty divine warrior will lift up his arm against his enemies. But here's the crazy thing it's gonna be done in a really upside down way. He's considered her low estate, the humble condition of this servant girl. It's gonna come through a miraculous conception, through favor toward the weak, the lowly, the powerless. This great reversal is gonna come through death on a cross. He has and he is and he will topple the mighty from their thrones and exalt the the lowly. He has and he is and he will satisfy the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. It's a reversal, that's what's happening. And it really is a reversal that shouldn't really surprise us. I mean, after all we know This is how God works, right? We know this. No one was looking in Bethlehem for the savior of the world. No one was looking for Joseph to be in Egypt, ready to preserve the entire lineage of our savior when a famine struck. No one was looking to the youngest son of Jesse to be the champion of Goliath. No one was looking looking to the barren wife, Hannah, to have a boy. No one was looking to the temple of Eli for that little boy called Samuel to be raised up to such a position. No one was looking to marry an unmarried virgin to give birth to the Savior of the world. No one was looking for God to come to us in the form of an infant and triumph through a cross. This is how God works. And our God has done a mighty deed with his arm, has he not? He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And then the last line of her song, he has helped his servant Israel how does he help him? Remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just like he spoke to our ancestors. To conclude this speech, this psalm, this speaking out, this hymn, I would say this song. To conclude this song, here's what she says. She says that he has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just like he said he would. That's what Mary says. To conclude her song, we remember with Mary God's promises all those years ago. And not only do we remember God's promises, I don't know if you noticed this in her line, we remember that He remembers His promises. That's what we remember. That God does not forget what He has said, and that He rings faithful. Micah seven twenty says, "You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham, as you swore to, swore to our fathers from days long ago." Isaiah forty one eight and nine says, "But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend." I brought you from the earth and called you from its furthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I haven't rejected you. Psalm 98, 1 through 3. Sing a new song to the Lord. For he has performed wonders. His right hand and his holy arm have won him victory. He has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely for all generations they will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just like he said he would. That is a good song. That's a good song, church. That's a song worth singing. I would argue that's a song worth memorizing. Because for every believer, this is our song. It's ours. This is our story. This is our song, praising my Savior all the day long. It's our song. And you can sing it as a believer, you can sing it any time. Think about this: If you have hope and trust and foundation in Jesus Christ, you can sing this song regardless of your circumstance. You can. In fact, if you have a son or a daughter who is lost or wayward, like my oldest, you can still sing this song. If your finances are tight, you can sing this song. If you find yourself at a loss in the midst of grief, if you know our great God, you can sing this song. If your relationships are strained with the people you love, you can sing this song. As a believer, we join with Mary, magnifying the Lord because of his goodness, his might, his holiness, his mercy. No matter how dire your circumstance, you can sing this song. I would say you need to sing this song. You need to sing this song. For some of you, you can get up and you can sing it with a smile on your face and complete agreement with what it says. And for others, you can get up and you can sing it in agreement, but maybe through tears. Maybe asking Jesus, maybe singing it while you ask Jesus to help you trust these words more fully. I believe, help my unbelief. Tune my heart to your word, Lord. Believers everywhere around the entire world can claim this song as their own. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, our Savior. How would this sound for our church? For God has looked on us, on our helpless estate. He has our lowly condition. Surely for all generations, people will call us Sunnybrook. People will call us blessed. Why? Because the mighty one has done great things for us. And his name is holy. It's our song. Don't you know when we talk about orange and raising up the next generation, don't you know that as they know him, that we will get to see that his mercy is from generation to generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just like he said he would. He has helped his servant Israel. He has helped us too, you know. You know how he's helped us, right? I mean, you remember the lengths that he went to to help us to save us with his mighty arm, to snatch us up and deliver us. He has helped us. Maybe we should actually just remember that together right now, should we? If you would, if you just grab these little cups that should be in front of you. We're gonna do this a little differently, but I do want you to have these in your hand. I'm going to have a song played over us, and it's called The Magnificat. And if you were to Google it, you would get a whole bunch that you're going to have to weed through to find this one. Because I did, and I did. So I just looked and looked and looked, and I just found I love this song. This song is so great, and it turns out lots of people love it, and they've turned it in lots of songs. So what I want us to do is what we're going to do is we're going to remember what God has done, holding the bread, holding the cup. And we're going to listen to what God has done through the playing of this song. And on the screens, there's going to be scriptures that this song would have been rich with meaning that would have alluded to. And you can read and you can listen and you can remember. Just make sure that we take this time to do that together. Don't miss it. Participate in this song. Let's do that now. My soul magnifies.